the thing we have today that we didn't have it 10 years ago is we have this really incredibly active network of activists, of groups with lived experience like Just Leadership, uh, investigative reporters like yourselves who are looking for these things. I've been actually quite surprised and pleased with the, the amount of interest in the potential plight of people behind bars. Hey everyone, this is Manny Faces, producer and host of Newsbeat. We'll be back with more of our signature episodes, merging hard-hitting social justice journalism with music and compelling original lyrics very soon. But the times called for a special bonus episode after the March 11th declaration by the World Health Organization that the rapidly spreading coronavirus outbreak was officially a pandemic. And in a statement, the organization said, quote, It's been assessing this outbreak around the clock, and we are deeply concerned both by the alarming levels of spread and severity and by the alarming levels of inaction. Now, as nearly everyone by now is becoming aware, since December 1st, 2019, more than 130,000 cases of COVID-19 have been reported across 123 countries and territories. The disease has now been reported in almost every state in America, with significant clusters in New York, Washington State, and California, completely upending daily life. Schools are closed. Major sports leagues have suspended or delayed action, and states across the country are banning large gatherings of people, bringing massive amounts of daily life in the United States to a halt. Since our focus on this platform typically centers around social justice and associated issues, we thought it was important to get a picture of what life is like inside U.S. jails and prisons amid the outbreak. Remember, more than 2.2 million Americans are incarcerated each year, and it's almost impossible to prevent large gatherings inside these institutions. As of this recording, there are no reported cases of coronavirus in these facilities, but experts warn that infections are inevitable. This has a lot to do with the fact that medical providers are understaffed, that prisoners are by nature in close proximity to one another, and healthcare services in jails and prisons are generally substandard. And we reached out to a former New York City health official who helped fight the H1N1 pandemic about a decade ago to learn more about what this all means. And before we start, I just want to remind everyone to subscribe to Newsbeat on your favorite podcast app to make sure you never miss one of our episodes. And please leave a rating or review while you're there. And if you're interested in learning more about criminal justice in the United States, head over to usnewsbeat.com and check out our series on mass incarceration. That's usnewsbeat.com slash mass incarceration. Now, onto the critical issue at hand. To discuss COVID-19 and its potential impact on jails and prisons, our managing editor, Rashed Mian, was joined by Dr. Homer Venters, former chief medical officer for New York City's jails and president of Community Oriented Correctional Health Services, a nonprofit. Dr. Venters is also author of Life and Death in Rikers Island. Dr. Venters, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Uh, so, Dr. Venters, before we get into the coronavirus outbreak, can you just give listeners a general idea of what healthcare services are like in U.S. jails and prisons? Healthcare services behind bars are generally substandard and disconnected from all the basic institutions that promote quality and transparency in the rest of our nation. So, the bodies that we're hearing about every day, the CDC, our state departments of health, local departments of health, they're really outside the walls of these places. And so most healthcare services behind bars are run by security services, by sheriffs and commissioners of correction. And they're the ones that we've left with the job of figuring out what's the right amount of quality, the scope of services, and the transparency. And so, uh, as you can imagine, they're not healthcare professionals, and they have not been able to establish any kind of clinical standard of care behind bars. So the 
the status is quite poor and it's quite removed from our eyes. Right. So we're already at a, at a curious point where there's longstanding issues inside these facilities. Can you talk about how vulnerable these jails and prisons are to an infectious disease outbreak such as COVID-19? And in your response, if you can, can you talk about how jails responded to the H1N1 outbreak uh, about a decade ago and what leaders can learn from that? Yes, the H1N1 was a really pivotal moment for us in outbreak response behind bars. Uh, I had the good fortune at the time of, uh, while I was at working at Rikers at Island, I was part of the Department of Health, which was managing the outbreak response for the entire community, all of New York City. And so our team was just one part of the community's team, which is as it should be. Most jails and prisons, the health staff work for the sheriff or the commissioner of corrections and prison systems. What that means is those health services aren't integrated with outbreak response. And that's critically important because the places that people find themselves, these jails and prisons, promote the spread of communicable disease. People are in very close contact. They often don't have access to basic uh, hand washing. These are generally dirty um, and have poor infection control practices. Uh, These places also have chronic understaffing of both security staff and health staff. And so many of the ways in which these buildings and places are designed and run promotes the spread of communicable disease. And then we have health systems in these places that will be trying to prepare for this outbreak. Uh, But those are not health systems that are run by or even really connected with the kind of health systems that we're used to in the community that use basic standards of infection control and even data reporting and transparency about who's getting tested. And so I have grave concerns about the patients, uh, and that's really the most important part of this. We've filled up our jails and prisons with people who are disproportionately people of color, but also people with serious physical and behavioral health problems. So people that are, who are at high risk uh, and the, the push of mass incarceration from the 80s and 90s and 2000s means that we have many older patients in these places too. So it really is a, a confluence uh, of, of worst possible scenarios. Uh, and we have people working in these places and uh, detained in these places that are looking at really a very perilous and, and looming threat. Right. And uh, we spoke to you before for, for an episode on mental health and incarceration, and you sort of talked about this fundamental disconnect between security staff, the correctional officers, and the medical service providers. So on the most basic level, I mean, how can jails and prisons effectively communicate a response to take on this enormous challenge uh, with this sort of built-in maybe distrust among the people who are working inside these facilities? I think that the institutions that are directing the community responses in these settings, that means the local departments of health, the state departments of health, they need to integrate Uh, correctional administrators, security staff, and the correctional health staff together, because it is clear that these places do not have the resources. Uh, Even managing the inside the jail or inside the prison response uh, requires tremendous amounts of help from the outside. So most of these places right now have to beg, borrow, or steal just to get testing kits, for instance. They don't have testing kits, so they have to go ask for them every time they need one. Getting hospital access to hospital beds for patients who become ill in these places, it's not an easy task. Many hospitals may balk at the idea of multiple patients coming in who are sick from a jail or prison, who each of them is accompanied by two correctional officers. But we must be unambiguous right now that access to all the levels of testing and care 
must be available based on clinical needs, not based on criminal justice status. And I fear that without integrating the managers and administrators and people who are uh, experiencing this incarceration right now, if they're not in the room when we're deciding these local and state policies, they're going to be left out just as they have uh, all along the way before. And Dr. Ventures, uh, you mentioned before sort of the um, uh, prison and jail boom several decades ago. And as you know, you know, in the 90s and even in the late 80s, we had these state and federal officials pass enhanced sentencing laws that just put people in jails for longer and longer. And there was a study that was done that said the number of people 55 or older in state and federal prisons increased 280% between 1999 and 2016. So as we know, seniors in the general population are most vulnerable to COVID-19. So how can this particular jail population be protected? Well, this is a really vexing problem because when H1N1 hit, it was the inverse, right? We had lots of young patients, adolescent patients being affected. And so it was very, even with that response, it was very complicated to figure out how do we um, come up with special housing areas for people to be held in. The sick people are in one spot, the well people in another spot. We have differences between who's who has symptoms and then who has symptoms and also has been diagnosed. Uh, and then how do we get the sickest people to the hospital? All of that was difficult, uh, but just with dealing with one subset. The patients who are older are dispersed throughout all the parts, all the security classifications, all the types of housing areas uh, in these jails and prisons. And it is no small feat to think about how would we uh, for the for those of them that develop some symptoms, we would want them in a specialized housing area. Well, if some of them in a jail, for instance, are pre-trial and some of them have been sentenced, uh, or if some of them are higher security classification and lower, it doesn't take much to understand that this presents a very difficult management task for the jail or prison administrators. Uh, then if you add in the fact that many of these patients need test kits and testing, and then they need access to hospitals uh, if they become sick. And really, this is also made worse by the fact that most jails and prisons don't have good data systems. So today, every jail and prison you would expect knows who are the patients who are at high risk, who are the older patients, who are the patients with chronic medical problems. But in prisons and jails that operate with paper medical records, which many of them still do, they have to go through rafts of either Excel spreadsheets used to track diabetics and put that together with asthma encounters uh, and look through paper charts. And remember that these criteria may change day to day. We knew, you know, what we knew last week about this virus is different than what we know today. So the, the, the lack of capacity to operate a, on a population health level, that is to, to look at risk management and who are the patients at high risk, how do we manage them day to day, this will be very difficult for these places both because of the physical plant management, also because of the data systems that are needed to find and care for the sickest patients or the patients at highest risk. So it will be a tremendous challenge in these places. And then, you know, still my primary concern is that when patients develop symptoms and become sick, that they be afforded the same level and standard of care that's available in the community. And our experience in lots of other instances is that is that, that will be an uphill climb both because these places aren't built for transparency. So families and uh, local officials may not find out that people are sick right away. Um, and, uh, you know, unlike a school, which sends out a report every day, you know, we have a test that's positive or this is what we're doing. That uh, ethos of transparency 
will, I fear, stop at the walls of these places, unfortunately. So you've talked about, you know, a greater continuity among outside officials and those inside jails and prisons. One other issue that you're bringing up is testing. And as we know, in the United States, we are falling behind in terms of testing for this disease. There's been, I think, uh, as of today, maybe up to 10,000 people officially tested um, in the country. Other nations have tested a lot more people. Are you concerned that jails and prisons won't be prioritized uh, in terms of testing if there's doctors on the outside who can't even get this test um, for the patients that are coming to see them? Absolutely, I'm concerned. I think that as you think about the different large domains of work, there's you know surveillance to find who are the people are at risk, and then uh, there's the active surveillance that'll probably happen with people who develop symptoms, and then that will involve testing. Uh, we have to have an unambiguous standard uh, that's based on clinical need and promoting clinical outcomes, positively saving people's lives, and that is the job of the local commissioners of health, state commissioners of health, state departments of health, and the CDC to be very clear that these standards don't stop at the walls of jails and prisons. And so the person who meets clinical criteria for a test must be given a test and they shouldn't be denied the test or inpatient care or access to a ventilator uh, and respiratory technicians uh, because of their criminal justice status. And, you know, our experience with many other responses is that that discrimination uh, will creep in. And so we have to be very vigilant about it. The thing we have today that we didn't have it 10 years ago is we have this really incredibly active network of activists, of groups with lived experience like Just Leadership, uh, investigative reporters like yourselves who are looking for these things. I've been actually quite surprised and pleased with the, the amount of interest in the potential plight of people behind bars. So it doesn't mean that these institutions are any better than they were 10 years ago. But the fact that we can hold officials to account quickly to say, look, if you're testing people in the community uh, and if you say that you have uh, housing areas that you're isolating because some people have some flu symptoms, why aren't you testing those people? What, like what's your ethical and, and uh, clinical rationale for denying people access to that care? Right. In terms of recommendations. Uh, so as we know, there's thousands of people that are going in and out of jails and prisons each day in America. Um, we've had significant criminal justice reform, especially surrounding the issue of bail. So potentially there are less people going in on a daily basis who, you know, just going back several years ago would go in and if they couldn't pay bail, couldn't afford it, they'd be stuck there. But now they might be uh, uh, released on their own recognizance. What policies need to be made on the outside in terms of talking with prosecutors and uh, local police departments about potentially putting less people in jail during this time period to prevent an outbreak? I think one of the most important voices in this discussion are uh, especially county sheriffs. They're the ones that are looking, they look at their facilities right now, and I've talked to sheriffs and their staff all over the country who are terrified about the prospect of, you know, if they right now have a jail, that a county jail that is 70, 80% full, they have already thought through more than most of us would even understand how difficult it will be for them to manage this outbreak. Their voices actually are really important to get forward because these are not people that are shy about promoting public safety as like the top priority, but their inability to do just basic competent outbreak management should help us rethink all of the earlier steps. Uh, the other part of this, thinking about certainly diversion, alternatives, uh, this is a critical time to, to maximize those opportunities. But we should also recall that with H1N1, there were patients who were in jail who couldn't get out. 
because they didn't have access to the courts. And so just as correctional staff will get sick and teachers will get sick and, and doctors will get sick, correctional officers are going to get sick, but also judges and prosecutors and defense attorneys. And so we had the experience during H1N1 that there were people in jail that were still in jail because they couldn't access the courts for one reason or another. And this will happen all over the country. And and not just for county jails. You know, you think about if you had a hearing in an immigration, you know, in immigration detention and you needed to go for some sort of hearing, that was your path out of the building. Um, prison, prison also. Um, many of these administrative processes, they'll be affected just like every other part of our community. So the, the less full these buildings are when the virus hits the building, uh, the more likely we are to uh, avoid what are going to be, I think, preventable deaths. Right. And, uh, and Dr. Venters, um, you know, I don't want to sound like an alarmist, but this does feel like it's still sort of we're in the beginning stages of this outbreak in the United States. You could correct me if I'm wrong. You have more experience. But with that being said, uh, what is the sort of worst case scenario in your mind if there is an outbreak in a particular jail or prison or multiple facilities in this country? Yeah, I think that, you know, we hear it's interesting, all the terms of art that Americans have and people all over the world have learned in the last uh, two weeks. You know, we've heard a lot about infection control, about the importance of hand washing. Social distancing is something that we talk about all the time now. Those are really things that are inaccessible to most people behind bars. So many people behind bars don't really have access to hand washing when they want to. If you're in an intake pen, uh, if you're in a housing area with 40 people and there's one sink that works and no soap, which is pretty standard from the places I've seen around the country, those things and the ability to distance yourself from the people around you, that's not possible. And all of this is important because another term we hear a lot about is flattening the curve. And so that's this notion that we're in the beginning of it, of an outbreak, as you just said, and it's, it's a pandemic. And so we're in this kind of exponential rise. The curve is going up, right? We're having more and more cases every day as we track it along day by day by day. Um, and so all of these measures about social distancing, closing schools, things like this are really effective measures to flatten that curve. That is to slow the rate of rise of new cases. And the reason that's critically important is because we are worried that the rise of that curve will burst through uh, and, and overwhelm our hospital capacity, especially that we won't have enough inpatient beds to take care of the sick people. Well, uh, incarceration pushes that curve up. It does. It's the opposite of flattening. Um, because these places promote communication of disease, because they have inadequate health services, because the, the management of the outbreak is, is very fraught, it will tend to drive that curve up. And we already know that people who are behind bars face barriers in accessing inpatient care, hospital care. And that's really critical when we talk about flattening this curve. We're trying to not overwhelm the hospital system, especially for inpatient hospitalization of people who need it, who have coronavirus and are sick. For patients behind bars who already face barriers to make that step, my concern is that we'll have many preventable deaths because we haven't figured out how to find the people who are sick in these settings and get them to inpatient care. And this doesn't just impact them and their families. It also means that you have untreated, serious infection, in this case, a communicable disease, still sitting in one of these buildings. And so that is my concern. And my fear is that we have preventable deaths happening disproportionately among people who are incarcerated, people of color, and that these places could quickly slip into chaos 
when correctional staff are sick, uh, the health staff are sick, and the chronic misinformation and, and rumor mill that, that happens in every jail and prison takes over. It's great, Dr. Benzers. And before we let you go, and, and since you mentioned it, that, that more people are seemingly having this conversation about infectious diseases inside jails and prisons than they would have going back several years, even back to H1N1. So since we're talking about this now, can you just inform listeners about some other important steps that you'd like to see jails and prisons take going forward, uh, regardless of an infectious disease outbreak? What can be done to improve healthcare inside these facilities? I know that it's probably a long list, but are there um, some just some key things that could be done uh, to improve the situation? Sure. It is a big lift because we spent decades building this uh, siloed and inadequate health system. I think that the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, should have an office of detention or correctional health. And that should be monitoring all health outcomes in these places, not just infectious or communicable disease, but traumatic brain injury that occurs behind bars, uh, access to health and health outcomes in those places. State departments of health and county departments of health should have a role in determining what's good quality healthcare in all these places. We shouldn't leave that to commissioners of correction uh, and sheriffs. And finally, and at a higher level, you know, we should eliminate the inmate exception of the Social Security Act of 1965. That's the law that precludes the use of Medicaid funds behind bars or federal funds for institutionalized people. And while it keeps fun- those funds out, it also keeps those quality metrics out. So all of those are kind of our public institutions to promote health quality. They should be applied inside these places because as we find out now, these places are part of the community. But we are about, and the people who are incarcerated are about to pay the price for having pretended that they aren't. All right, Dr. Venter. So let's hope that uh, these uh, public leaders take some of your recommendations to heart, whether they hear it here or in a, in a piece you wrote for The Hill, I saw and you've been interviewed multiple places. So um, hopefully they do that. And we really appreciate your insight. Thank you for joining us on Newsbeat. Thank you very much. Hospital for the medicine, chapel for the reverend, school for the betterment, pee now for the punishment, the sweet smell of justice, smell a little pungent, the fruit of your labor looking similar to fungus, 1994 crime bill on the hill, three strikes for the kill, geo target for the tills, that's the Emmett Tills, and the mentally ill, let the feds hold the weight in the state, pay the bill, two million people rock abide by the Buckeyes, Lady Liberty sits idly by, cover her eyes, mass incarceration is the modern day enslavement, blame the Blameless, 46% of the nation still suffering. Syntax error still buffering. Sex work to Mary Jane, they want you to change. Non-violent offenders serving mandatory minimums with four-fifth and bribes. Basically synonyms. Come with us to Rikers Island, Rikers Island, the biggest jail complex in America. In America, America. a place haunted, place haunted by its violent history. Violent history. Eight thousand inmates living in a kind of suspension, a, kind of suspension. a, kind of suspension. a shadow world. A shadow world. A shadow world. If you can survive Rikers Island, you can survive anything.